Have a good night. How is it that you're never scared? Who says that I'm not? What are you scared of? Uh, let's see. Uh, being by myself? I'm scared of ending up alone. What about you? Those things out there. What if the people are still inside? What if they're trapped in there without any control of their body? I'm scared of that happening to me. Okay. First of all, we're a team now. Okay, we're gonna help each other out. And second, they might still look like people, but that person is not in there anymore. Henry says that they've moved on, that they're with their families, like in heaven. Do you think that's true? I go back and forth. I mean, I'd like to believe it. But you don't. I guess not. Yeah, me neither. This is the official The Last of Us podcast, and I'm your host, Christian Spicer. As we all await the release of part two, I'm revisiting The Last of Us part one and talking with the visionaries and talents who made it. We'll be recapping the story while diving deep into the making of. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, do that now, because we're walking through this story chronologically. And that means in today's episode, we'll be working our way through the rest of summer. And I'll be talking again with Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson, AKA Joel and Ellie. And I'll also be talking with art director, Eric Pangolinen, and of course, writer and creative director, Neil Druckmann. Now, last we left off, Joel vowed to transport Ellie to the Fireflies after leaving behind his recently infected partner, Tess. He and Ellie make their way out of Boston and into... Jesus! Whoa, man! What What the hell was that? That would be one of Bill's traps. Your friend a bit paranoid, maybe? That's putting it lightly. What's the deal with this guy? Well, he helped us smuggle stuff into the cities. He knows how to find things. Well, let's hope we don't blow up trying to find him. Ellie, come on, just... Oh, shit! I got you! Damn it, Bill! What just happened? Another one of Bill's stupid traps! Cut that rope, and it'll bring me down! On it! Shit, here they come. Joel! Just hang to the rope. Ellie, how's it looking? I'm going as best I can. Get off your ass on your... We're meeting... We're meeting Bill, which as a player... I expect Bill to die. (laughs) I expect to like Bill. I expect Bill to die. And I expect Joel and Ellie to be worse off because of it. Um, Who is Bill to Joel? And and then in that moment, who is Bill to Ellie coming into this from a, a new perspective? 
you know, when we work on the story, we write everything on index cards and we outline it on this big cork board and every section has a purpose. So one of the things we wanted to explore in the story is like, how are people surviving? The people that are kind of situated in a place, what are they, what do they do to survive? We've seen so far the military, which is surviving by these very kind of oppressive means. It means people don't have freedom of movement. They might not have as much food as they want to, but they're mostly protected from the infected. That's one version. And then we want to say, okay, what if someone uh, could survive by themselves? So it does two things. One is it, it sets up, okay, here's another way to survive in this world. And what are the pros and cons of that? But the other thing is it reflects, it's almost like Bill's living, he's taken Joel's philosophy or what Joel believes his philosophy is to the nth degree. It's like Joel believes like you don't get attached to anyone. That sort of shit's good for one thing getting you killed. You live by yourself and that's how you survive. I realize it's gotta be just me. And we get to see, okay, well, this is what that looks like. Bill, it ain't ain't like that. It's bullshit. It is just like that. I definitely see almost every character that that Joel meets throughout this, uh, especially those that you meet is, you have to go through the thought experiment of, you know, there before the grace of God go I. Like you look at Bill and it's like, I could have gone crazy. I could have isolated myself and found a little, you know, shitheel town that uh, I could have just put up this barrier and and all that I have to worry about is protecting myself. Uh, why did Joel choose to be a smuggler in a quarantine zone? Why did he choose to partner with Tess and do this? Why didn't he just isolate? Um, but... I definitely do look at that relationship with Bill, which is primarily it's we we know that Bill and Tess have are, are kind of like that that's the relationship, right? Joel is always kind of on the 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 um the outside of that. He's the he's the plus one. So that's why it's it's kind of a a tenuous relationship when you see Bill. It's like, hey, well, you know, you know, I'm friend, friend, <laughs> uh, when they first meet, and and the relationship between the two of them is is contentious. It's like you and I have commerce together, but we're not friends. Uh, it's almost like Bill is is Joel's weed dealer. You know, it's like, hey, we're cool, <laughs> but I'm, you know, this is the limit of our relationship. You know, um, and it's to me, it was always a very interesting choice that Neil made in the script to um, when Bill brings up Tess. How in the hell is Tess okay with this suicide mission? It's actually her idea. Really? Yeah, this is right after Tess has died, and and there's not that. Um, oh, Tess is 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 dead, and I've I've thought about that moment a lot. And it's is did he did Joel not tell Bill that because it's like then you and I have nothing to do with each other because the only reason why Joel is in front of Bill is because he needs something. He needs a car. Bill's like sh- trying to say like why are you with this kid like don't you like and he kind of lays it out the, almost the themes of the game is like don't you know what happens when you like rely on someone and like you're gonna get yourself killed and. Joel's like, it wasn't me, it was Tess. He's like, well, the broad's not as smart as I thought she was. And then Bill starts insulting Tess, no, j- just when Joel kind of stops him. Bill, face. let me please just get on with it. And then we wanted to show how Bill is... Bill ain't exactly the most stable of individuals. Again, he just rambles to himself. All the supplies from the warehouse okay. are into the east well, now he's talking to himself. again. When you don't have another person to communicate with, you start going a little crazy and your mind splits. Just so you could communicate with anyone, you start communicating with yourself. And we wanted to show that as you're walking around town um, to say, okay, this is probably what this guy does when no one's around. I can't believe you agree to this bullshit. Bill. Joel. This way. 
He just is living this very kind of lonely, sad existence. And then uh, so much of his character came from the actor that played M.W. Earl Brown, uh, who was just phenomenal. I mean, I'm going to say that about every one of our cast members. Um, but he really kind of brought this, there's just like this anger and this resentment. And again, this this really kind of pushing away people uh, that w- w- really felt honest the way it came out of Earl's performance. What, you know this guy or something? Frank. Who the hell's Frank? He was my partner. I think the the idea of Bill having a partner, um, we're always trying to subvert expectation. Like, you think it's going to go this way, and if it went exactly how you predicted, it's going to get boring. So you think you're meeting Bill because Joel needs a car, because he wants to get to his brother as quickly as possible to get rid of Ellie. And then we're going to subvert things by having a horde of infected in the school, and it's not going to go at all how these characters predict it's going to go. But another way to subvert expectations is, okay, Bill is this loner who pushes everybody away, and then find out he really cared about this person. And at first, I think we conceived of it as just like a, a surviving partner, his best friend. And as I was writing those scenes, it just, I don't know, sometimes things just come out of you, and it, 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 it felt more interesting to say, okay, this partner is his lover as well. When we shoot these scenes, we first do a table read where we kind of get the actors to say the words for the first time, maybe improvise some changes, um, but really make them part of the storytelling process. Every chance I get the, to the opportunity to talk about specifically the character of Bill, I love bringing up the fact that what W. Earl Brown, what he brought to that character specifically was he, he infused that character with the soul. Um, Neil and Bruce did such a great job of giving it framework and especially Neil writing the character. But one of the the first moments that I remember seeing Neil's MO, which would be, I'm going to present you with something and I'm going to give you the opportunity to make it better uh, or to flesh it out, was sitting at the table read for this one scene. And, and the scene is when we um, discover that Bill has a partner. And that was the specific word that was used. Just use the word partner. And Earl asked Neil, he says, when you say partner, what are you stating? And Neil says in his famous phrase now, what do you think? And Earl made the choice. He's like, if it's all right with you, I think it's interesting that in this world, this man found partnership, he found connection, and he found love in this person. And that's what it was. Um, but that was a choice that that Earl made purely as an actor, that Neil... Uh, facilitated and supported that decision. At the time, I didn't think about what representation could mean to other people in, in, in this instance. I don't know why I didn't think about, and, I, and maybe I, I should have, um, but since the game has come out and there was like just a nuanced gay relationship that uh, people connected with and identified with, and, it, and they come and have expressed to me how much it meant to them to see it represented so honestly or represented as well as as we did it. Um, it just kind of reinforced that feeling of um, you know, um, seeing yourself in something you love or seeing yourself in a movie, in a game, in a book. Uh, it's, 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 it's such a unique feeling um, that I can relate to on other levels um, that it's just something that has become part of our process now to make sure that we're inclusive, 
to tell better stories. It ultimately, it leads to better stories and it leads to more people being able to connect to different layers of your stories than just kind of telling the same stories with the same kind of characters and the same kind of relationships. Pretty good shot with that thing. How about we just leave this kind of stuff to me? Well, we could both be armed. Cover each other. I don't think so. So we got shotguns and bombs. What the hell are we doing with them? Well, every few weeks this military caravan rides through town. I assume they're out looking for supplies. I mean, you'd be amazed at the shit that they overlook. Anyway, a few months back, they were rolling through and they get overrun by this horde of infected. They were all over the truck. It plows right in the side of the high school. Still sitting there with the battery in it. So we take that battery and we put it in another car. Bingo! I wanted to get it, but it seemed too dangerous with all the infected on that part of town. But fuck it! Actually, might work. Ellie, come on. Look, there's a school. All right. Ready? Guess we'll find out. My name is Eric Pangilinan, uh, and I'm the art director in Last of Us One. I'd love to start broadly for people who may not know, um, and for me, <laughs> what is your role as art director? Um, so it's almost like a mix between a producer and an art director and an art manager where I manage the entire project from start to finish, dealing with the creative director, the concept art, the animation, the camera guys, and the environment team. Um, so I take care of the game from start to finish. So how does the art and the art direction contribute to that feeling of um, like loneliness and just isolation in this world that has moved on from where we started you know, 20 years prior? I think one of the goals we tried to do in the art was to contrast that because the feeling and the, and the situations we put the players in is very grim, very sad, very violent. And we want to contrast that with the environment being beautiful, open, bright. How do you balance the beauty of nature with the destruction of what it represents? That here's this beautiful flower, per se, but it's not where a flower should be if society was as it was, you know, 20 years prior. How, how do you balance that? I think for us, we, that was, um, you know, we, we searched the internet, we look, we look for references and, you know, like in most uh, images we saw, it was just overwhelming. It was just nature will take back everything. And for us, it is for the art director, it's more about balancing that so that it's, it's visually appealing we use that to our advantage in, in separating the values and separating uh, what is nature and what is the environment so that it creates a good balance aesthetically uh, to the world. It gives us opportunities to create natural formations with what was once man-made, like using bridges as uh, pathways for water to go by so you have all of these waterfalls cascading on top of each other but instead of rocks you have like the uh, pancaked freeway so it creates like this nice cascade down 
um, an environment. But when you look at it closely, you'll see like, hey, that's not rocks. That's not these, these you know, terracing. It's actually a destroyed structure, like the freeway that collapsed on top of each other and formed this nice waterfall. One of the moments I'd really like to talk about, it's arguably the first and I think only, certainly one of the few, it's the boss fight in the game, right? Like if boss fights even exist in the game, you know, it's not like a health bar shows up and boss fight, fight, you know, comes on screen, but it's the encounter with the bloater. It's such an important moment in the game. And I'd love to hear how that moment and the gym were created. What the fuck is that? Goddamn bloater. Well, what? Ellie, take cover. I guess I the the bloater is an interesting part in the game, but I, I think I remember um, us being very against like making this feel like a game. We want you to be immersed in it as if you're in the world. So, so UI was a very uh, careful balance in how much UI we we're going to give the player so that it doesn't put them in like, oh, now you're in a combat space. So now you're fighting this boss or something. So. We were very careful not to take you out of that that experience. And uh, one of the things that we do in the environment, especially like man-made environments like the school, was to go very deep with the identity of the space. So, so we, we try to treat every space architecturally correct. And we try to study the interior designs of each of these structure so that we are designing it as if it's a real school and then applying this environmental storytelling of like what happened to that place like did it did it uh, collapse did it get flooded um, how did the dirt manage to get to this area and what did it do to the materials like the floor to the roof how do you apply the infected into this area? Like, how do you show the pattern of the growth coming from the source? So the bloater is really like the, the pinnacle of the most dangerous uh, part of the infection. And I think that's, that's why this thing was treated like it was the boss, you know, and, and it was presented in a way where you can see its maximum strength, like in this gym, and you were able to fight this with with all your most powerful um, weapons. And at least for me, I feel like it also represented, because it felt like a real space, uh, almost a micro version of a hero's journey coming complete where it's the realization of, for so many people, projecting my own feelings, but the the school bully and, and that bullying happening in gym right? Like be it the tough gym teacher and she's yelling at you or the kid who pushes you into the locker. And here's Joel, this man's man, you know, got survived everything so far, taken on the bully uh, <laughs> in the school gym. Yeah, I've never seen it that way. But yeah, that 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 does uh, that does make sense. I and mean, I guess that's why it's like the boss fight, right? Like you have to you have to up that thing with um the, the danger of the situation with something bigger. And I think for us, that was the solution. And it's something that, you know, if you were stuck with in an enclosed space, you'd, you'd be totally screwed. Um, and so like getting introduced to the bloater in this big gym is, is actually great because it gets you um, prepared for the other situations, which would be a lot hairier <laughs> than this. <laughs> Yeah. 
Ellie, just stay away from it. They destroy the bloater and make their way out of the high school. And they find Frank's body. They see Frank's body when they're in the middle of a yelling match. Bill? Somebody had the same idea they stole my shit. Well, then what the hell is plan B? You ought to be thankful you're still drawing breath. That was plan A, B, C, all the way to fucking Z. And furthermore, tell Tess that she could take Don't this job. Don't you bring Tess into this. Shove it right up nothing to do with uh, And then they find this body. Jesus. What, do you know this guy or something? Frank. Who the hell's Frank? He was my partner. He's the only idiot that would wear a shirt like that. He's got bites. And then Bill revealed that Frank was his partner, and we see Joel, there's a moment of empathy. And Joel pauses, and he's like, Reckon he didn't want to turn. So he, yeah, I guess not. He doesn't know what to say. Like, that was one of, the, one of my favorite descriptors of Joel when we sent out the casting description, is he's inarticulate. He doesn't quite know how to express himself because he's buried his feelings so much. And he's just not like a well-learned person. He's just, he doesn't quite know how to express his feeling, his thoughts. And he just, he just kind of rambles in that moment. Like, I don't, that's a, that's a rough deal. That's a tough deal. And that's the best he could do to comfort someone he cares about. But we see this moment of like, he gets it. He gets that sadness. He gets that loss. Um, And as much as he wants to bury those emotions, they bubble to the top. When we get to that scene, and he says, you know, he's so clinical about it. He's like, yeah, it looks like you got bit here, here, and here. And he has this one moment of contemplative grief. And then it's back to Bill. He's like, you get rid of that girl as soon as you can. You know, you, you, this is the last time I'm ever going to see you because you're going to be a dead man. We square. We're square. And get the fuck out of my town. That's it. But it's a reminder, if nothing else, for I think for Joel, Bill, that whole arc serves as a quasi-Faustian, um, just a, this this neo-Jiminy Cricket going, remember, remember, you get attached and it'll fuck you. Don't care about people. Remember, don't care about people. This is about getting this one thing and getting to the other side. Don't get emotional about this, Joel. That's what I think the purpose of Bill serves to Joel. It's a reminder of the atrocities of this world that we're in. Hey, what happened to sleeping? Okay, I know it doesn't look like it, but this here is not a bad read. Only one problem. Right there. To be continued. I hate cliffhangers. Where did you get that? Uh, back at Bill's. I mean, all this stuff was just lying there. (sighs) That scene, I think, was the first scene we ever wrote for that game. Uh, And it was used to cast Ellie and Joel. And it was just because we knew like there's so much like violence and intensity and drama in the story that we need to balance it with lighthearted moments. And that's why it was so important to get the kind of levity that's in the scene and the kind of chemistry that these characters needed to have in the scene. Um, so in that instance, it was like, well, we ha- what would Ellie steal from Bill? And she steals all sorts of stuff. But I remember the comic book was just 
the first inkling we had that, oh, Ellie would be into comics and there would be such a rarity in the world that she would get excited every time she found a comic. And then that later turned into its own mechanic that as Joel, you can, as you're exploring, you could find these comics that then you gift Ellie. And it was another way systemically to build in their relationship. And Neil, you've created real comics. You, you've wrote real Last of Us comics. So did American Dreams already exist at this point? Were you teasing it? Or is it something that came to you later? Yeah, no, when, when this scene was written, there was no thinking that, oh, there'll be an opportunity here to make a comic book with Faith Aaron Hicks, someone I admire. Um, I, I just love comics, and I've loved comics my almost my entire life. That That's where like I'm trying to think what a teenager would be into, that, that I just immediately gravitate towards that, which is comics. Again, I grew up in Israel when I was young, and at the time, we didn't have when I lived there, there were no comic book stores. So like one day my dad came back from the US and brought my older brother a Batman comic. And I was like seven or eight. And I was just blown away by it. It just left such an impression on me. And then it was all about how do we get more of these things? And when we finally moved to the US, as a kid, I just collected like boxes and boxes of comics and I could just devour them. Oh, man. Well, better than nothing. Oh, I'm sure your friend will be missing this tonight. Mm-hmm. Light on the reading, but it's got some interesting photos. Now, now Ellie, that ain't for kids. Whoa! How how the hell would he even walk around with that thing? Get rid of that. Well, hold Just... your horses. I want to see what all the fuss is about. Oh, why are these all stuck together? Um. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. Bye-bye, dude. I think those moments are so important in the game because it is heavy. And we need to have those moments to just sort of all have sort of a, a collective sigh of relief to have a break for a moment. And, you know, with the porn magazine, for instance, it's so funny because, you know, when we were talking about it, I don't think that I ever would have talked to my dad about a porn magazine, let alone talk about, a you know, talk about a porn magazine in that way. But that just shows how interesting Joel and Ellie's relationship is. And the whole joke where she asks why the pages are stuck together and he panics, but she's fucking with him. She knows. And it's it's so good because you think it's going to be a moment where Joel is panicking and he's like, oh, man, I got to have the birds and the bees conversation with her. Um, and she's like, no, nah, dude, I already know about all that shit. It's fine. It's just this beautiful sort of moment of him thinking, oh, I need to be a parent in this moment. And she's like, no, it's OK. I've I've raised myself to a certain degree. There's a lot of stuff that I already know, but we can joke about these things together because... That's just what life is now. You know, we have, for us, it takes us a long time when we start forming a friendship or a relationship to really put our sense of humor out there because it's, you don't know if your sense of humor is going to line up with somebody else's. If you say something, are they going to find that funny? Are they going to find it offensive? And sense of humor is such a big part of who we all are and the things that we find funny which doesn't make any sense from one person to the next person. But I feel like being able to share that with someone is the biggest sign of comfortability. And 
the fact that they get to that place and they start joking around and having a fun time, it shows their closeness and how this time that they've spent together and this journey that they've gone on, they're getting closer and they care about each other and they're starting to enjoy each other's company. And that needs to happen. That needed to be there. As we, we move through the game, the world becomes, um, or aspects of the world, there are still moments of levity, but aspects of the world become more brutal in terms of both the human enemies that we encounter and, and their ferocity, and also uh, enemies like uh, hunters. Easy! Please! Holy shit! Help! Are we gonna help him? Put your seatbelt on, Ellie. What about the guy? He ain't even hurt. <laughs> and the approach to what Joel and Ellie have to fight and, and, and physically combat. Is there an analogy there to Joel and Ellie's moral compass also sliding? Or is it just kind of the mechanics of gameplay that we need new enemies for our players to kind of deal with? It's almost all those things. So, uh, we wanted to show there are multiple threats in this world. One is the infected, um, and it's almost like when you think of a natural disaster. There isn't someone strategizing how to use these infected to kill people. It's just nature is now killing us um, in large numbers. Uh, but then knowing um, when supplies get scarce and people get desperate, they can turn very primal and violent. Get away from us, huh? We're back, And we wanted to explore that both in the story and in gameplay. Um, so, you know, when, when Ellie and Joel get to Pittsburgh, it's the first time, I guess we, there's a little bit in, in the opening in, um, in Boston, but we really don't really kind of really dive into it until you get to Pittsburgh and we just see how violent and how desperate people have become and how much they're and how tribal they've become and anybody outside the tribe is seen almost no different as the infected it's just someone you kill for just for survival and it was an opportunity to show through dialogue that this is something Joel has done um, so I remember like as we talk about these different parts I remember in my head when they came online and you know, we started production of the game with Pittsburgh. That was like one of the first environments we've built and worked our way out from there. And one of the first in-game bits of in-game dialogue we recorded is Ellie asking Joel, like, how did you know those people on the outset were trying to ambush us? And him saying, I've been on both sides. Oh. So, uh, you kill a lot of innocent people? Yeah. We'll take that as a yes. Take it however you want. And it was just like, you know, it, it took a lot of time to get to that dialogue. But what, what I love about dialogue like that is it just all of a sudden your brain is filled with all sorts of backstory of like what this guy must have done to get to this place. Um, and can he come back from that? It's like it's just so it, it, it kind of fills your mind about who he is and then raises interesting questions about where this might go. I, I think Joel looks at himself as a lone survivor. He's like, I, whatever you need from me, I'll do whatever you need. I'll do whatever I have to. Um, I don't need 
a jacket. I don't need a badge. I don't need um, any kind of affiliation or fraternity, especially. And by the way, that's that's one of my people are like, what's your favorite line from the game? I was like, that's it. Um, she's like, how did you know about that? And he goes, because I've been on both sides. All right. And it said so offhand. It's just like, because like, what do you want to know, girl? I'll tell you everything. Um, I think that to recognize that play, to be able to, like a quarterback, look down the line and go, they just changed. And to throw that audible and be able, that, that you have been in that situation before and you will not get caught looking again. Oh, shit. Come here, get your head down. Right now, I'm going to jump down there and I'm going to clear us a path. What about me? You stay here. This is so stupid. We'd have more of a fucking chance if you let me help. I am. You seem to know your way around a gun. You reckon you can handle that? Well, I sort of shot a rifle before, but it was at rats. Rats? With BBs. Well, it's the same basic concept. Lift it up. You're going to lean right into that stock as it is going to kick a hell of a lot more than any BB rifle. Okay. Go ahead and pull the bolt back. Just tug it. Here you go. Now, as soon as you fire, you're going to want to get another round in there quick. Listen to me. If I get into trouble down there, you make every shot count. Yeah. I got this. All right. And just so we're clear about back there, it was either him or me. You're welcome. I love that Joel doesn't let her shoot until that point because she is a kid. And that feels very real. And, you know, oftentimes in video games, it's just like, yeah, give every, everybody a gun and let's just like go shoot up some stuff. But it's 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 so real. I'm And, you know, it's if this happened today, there's no way that you would give your 14-year-old kid a gun on day one of an apocalypse. And I mean, at least I wouldn't. <laughs> um, but that is such a huge turning point in the game and their relationship because it shows a massive amount of trust between them. And I think Ellie at that point already trusted Joel in terms of how capable he was. And how safe she sort of felt with him to a certain degree. But it feels like the first time that Joel puts his trust in her and his life in her hands. And that lands with her. And their relationship is different after that. How can it not be? Yeah, and I think that is that that, that is the key moment because it's Ellie going from this, you know, we've seen it so many times in video games, this character that the protagonist needs to escort and protect everywhere to later that role totally reverses when we sort of first started shooting the game there was a lot of conversation you know me i am a gamer and as sort of a your companion that you are carrying with you the whole time sometimes it can feel like a burden sometimes not every time of course you fall in love with your companion character and you want to take care of them but there are moments when you're playing and you're like ah they keep like getting in the way and I keep having to go over here and save them. And obviously that's the, the, the game mechanics, but in sort of the discussions in, in when we first started shooting, um, 
there were a lot of conversations that we had and that I had with Neil where I was like, is there any way for her to be a little bit more capable uh, or helpful? It's like, because I, I sometimes will get frustrated that like they don't have a weapon or they don't have anything to help and they're just standing there like, ah, help me. And I was like, I, I would love for Ellie to not be that. I know she's 14 and we have to keep that into consideration, but if there's some way where she could be more capable, I would love that. How'd I do? About something, uh, a little more your size. It's for emergencies only. Okay. Well, we wanted to apply all this pressure on Joel and Ellie when they're in Pittsburgh and they're stuck in this city. And it seems like everywhere you turn, there's this antagonistic force of the hunters or the infected trying to kill you. That you could easily turn a- into the same mindset as the hunters and not trust anybody. And anyone you come across, you kill them first, ask questions later. And we see the difference between Joel and Ellie when they come across these two people with Henry and Sam. And Joel's instinct is to just kill them um, because Joel has seen too much go wrong. Um, It's actually the kids in this scenario of Ellie and Sam that bring pause to everything. Joel, stop! Look! Leave him alone. Easy, son. Just take it easy. It's all right. They're not the bad guys. Lower the gun. Yeah, I thought you were one of them, too. Then I saw you. If you haven't noticed, they don't keep kids around. I'm Henry. This is Sam. I think I caught your name was Joel. Ellie. How many are with you? They're all dead. Hey, we don't know that. We can help each other. Ellie. Safety in numbers and all that. She's right. We could help each other. So it was it was it became interesting from a dramatic standpoint to say, okay, now you're gonna have to trust someone, some a stranger. Can you do that? Is it okay to do that um, in this world? And they take a chance on them. And now that we have these two kids. Where, again, you've been in just this nothing but survival mode. Ellie has just shot a person for the first time. She's lost some of her innocence. um, So she's in a different mindset. But now when we bring Sam in and someone her age, we get to see them kind of joking. And Henry even comments on that. Wow. (laughs) All right, ready? Ow. (laughs) A blueberry hurt you? It's been a while since that boy even cracked a smile. She doesn't seem bothered by all this. Um, So it was an opportunity that we jumped on to explore the innocence of kids, even in horrific settings. And you read about this quite a lot, um, where people have to find levity, no matter what the situation is. You, And it happens in Holocaust, it happened in like, like even in some horrible situations in our world, you find stories of how people have found ways to keep themselves human. So Joel and Ellie are going with Henry and Sam. They're on their way to the radio tower, which is outside of town. And they're going to find the rest of their group. But at the gates, they're attacked by the Humvee. Henry and Sam just take off. They don't even wait for Joel and Ellie. And so Joel and Ellie have to run to the bridge, where Ellie just jumps into the water, even though she can't swim. 
Joel is forced to jump in after her, and the current is super strong. Thankfully, both are rescued by Henry! He's awake! Hey, you. We're alive. Okay. <laughs> See? What'd I tell you, huh? He's good. Everything's fine. You know, Sam's the one who spotted you. You guys are taking quite a bit of water. Henry! Get back! Hey, 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 hey! He's pissed, but he's not gonna do anything. You sure about that? Stop! Joel? He left us to die out there. No. You had a good chance of making it, and you did. But coming back for you meant putting him at risk. If it was the other way around, would you have come back for us? I saved you. He saved me too. We would have drowned. You know, for what it's worth, I'm really glad we spotted you. Now, that radio tower, it's on the other side of this cliff, okay? Place is gonna be full of supplies. You're gonna be really happy you didn't kill me. When you were making this moment, Neil, were you a father yet? Because this is a brother relationship, but it hit me as one of the strongest parent-child relationships in the game. I mean, as I'm trying to recollect the timeline, I definitely would, my daughter would have already been born. I'm sure subconsciously there was a lot happening there, but you're right in that it is a brother relationship, but it's more of a paternal relationship. And, and again, it's 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 as we're talking about this, I'm I'm just seeing this through line of the this theme of like protecting your kid versus giving them freedom to express themselves, to find who they are, to make mistakes. And we see that in the toy shop. Sam, what are you doing? Nothing. Get rid of it. My backpack is practically empty. What's the rule about taking stuff? It weighs like nothing. The rule? What is it? We only take what we have to. That's right. Now, come on. So there's some truth to that, but it's also missing this other point of, like, kids need that escape. They need that this other thing. So it's like, and that's why Ellie steals it and then gives it to Sam, which is this very kind of sweet gesture. Um, but that's one of those things that just felt very true to me and felt like it had to get in the game. So all these, um, in some ways, tests, in a lot of ways, Bill, in the most ways, Henry and Sam, when we go forward, these are all cautionary tales for Joel. So with Tess, it's like, okay, here's what's happened when you get um, idealistic and she believes she's going to save mankind, you're going to end up dead. With Bill... Okay, well, here's what happens when you're just about survival and about like limiting your freedom. And it's not about having fun or living. He drove his partner away. And later when you find this suicide note, like it's all laid out there. And it was like, Frank was not happy with Bill and he wanted to escape. And Bill just wanted, is like, well, we survive in this town. That's all we need. And it's like, that wasn't enough for Frank. So that's a cautionary tale for Joel. It's like, if you're just about survival, if you're just about keeping your emotions at bay, you're going to drive everyone else away. You're going to end up alone and miserable. And then later with Henry and Sam, there's like kind of the ultimate thing that Joel is afraid of, which is losing the person you love. There's a piece of concept art that was one of the first, and if anybody has the collector's art book of The Last of Us, it's the kind of sepia-toned sketch. It's a picture of Joel and Ellie at a, at a campsite, at a fire, and they're laughing. And I carried that picture with me every day to set because to me, that was always the moment that we were trying to get to. Uh, just the moment of levity, the moment of light. And the closest that we got was the scene with the beans. 
<laughs> Shut the hell up. Dead serious. It was Tommy's birthday, and that's all he wanted to do is just rent two Harleys and drive cross country. Oh, man. I could die happy if I could just ride one around the block. <laughs> what was it like? And we get to see for the first time Joel kind of being a bit nostalgic and, and wistful and having this moment of, of um, recollection of a, of a fond memory. It was good. It was real good. Good? Can, can you believe this guy? Come on, man. Give me details. Describe it. You know what? You two deserve a little privacy. No, no, Ellie, Ellie. This isn't just any regular motorcycle, okay? You get on that bad boy, you feel that engine? Nothing like it. Oh, yeah, how would you know? Seen it in my dreams. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's what we want. And that's what we need. We, at the end of the day, just need a basic human connection. And I think that's something that is very important to Ellie because you don't have all of this external stuff. You know, she doesn't have going to the movies or staying at home playing video games or, you know, going out to the park and playing a game of soccer. It's all you have and all she has is connections with people. And I think if you're someone who has dealt with loss, um, you realize how important that is. You know, and I think that's one of the main reasons why she gets connected with the Fireflies, because the Fireflies are simply trying to save humanity and save that connection. And I think it's it still goes back to her still trying to find meaning to all of that. Well, it's safe to say those two have officially bonded. Did Henry send you? No. Why would Henry send me? To make sure I'm not fucking up somehow. I'd say we all did pretty good back there. Especially you. Is everything all right? Yeah, everything's fine. Okay. Well, have a good night. How is it that you're never scared? Who says that I'm not? What are you scared of? <sighs> Let's see. Scorpions are pretty creepy. Uh, being by myself, I'm scared of ending up alone. What about you? Those things out there. What if the people are still inside? What if they're trapped in there without any control of their body? I'm scared of that happening to me. Okay. First of all, we're a team now. Okay, we're gonna help each other out. And second, they might still look like people, but that person is not in there anymore. Henry says that they've moved on, that they're with their families, like in heaven. Do you think that's true? I go back and forth. I mean, I'd like to believe it. But you don't. I guess not. Yeah. Me neither. All right. I'm pooped. I'll see you tomorrow. 
right, Sam? Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks, Joel. All right. We did it. I should move. No, no, no. Sam! Sam, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. You sure? I said I'm fine. Come on, come on! Let's move! That smells good. Good morning. Where's Sam? Sam? <laughs> Sam! What the hell? <laughs> Shit, he's turning! <laughs> That's my fucking brother! <laughs> Screw it! <laughs> Shit! Really? Gotta go right. Uh, oh my god. Sam? Oh no. Sam? Henry? Henry, stay there. Henry? What have you done? I'm gonna get that gun from you, okay? Sam. Oh, okay, okay, easy. It's your fault. This is nobody's fault, Henry. It's all your fault! Henry! Henry, no! Next week on the official The Last of Us podcast. Jackson County. Means we're close to Jackson City, right? Should be more than a few miles. You ready to see dear old brother? I'm just ready to get there. You nervous? I don't know what I'm feeling. I believe that it's, it's one of the most important moments in their relationship because they both to some degree are opening up about some heavy stuff. And granted, it's a a bit of a heated exchange, but they're getting stuff out. They're both trying to figure out how much they actually do care about each other. The official Last of Us podcast is produced by PlayStation and Spoke Media. It's hosted by me, Christian Spicer, and written by Brigham Mosley. Our Sony PlayStation team includes Charlie Yader, Christian Cardona, and Carrie Surtees. Our Naughty Dog team includes Arnie Meyer and Scott Lowe. Our production team is Carson McCain, Kelly Kolf, Trey Jones, Reyes Mendoza, and Alicia Force. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett, who contributed additional sound design and music. Today's episode included interviews with Neil Druckmann, Troy Baker, Ashley Johnson, and Eric Pagnolinen. Executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. Thanks for listening.